Father, we thank You for the grace of salvation. Thank You, Father, for the grace of the Gospel. Thank You for the grace that the Gospel has been communicated to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank You that the Gospel has been preserved in the Word that comes from Christ and given to us by the Spirit of God. Thank You, Father, for the grace of the Gospel that has saved us for those of us who have been saved. Thank You for the grace of the Gospel that keeps us in our salvation. Thank You for the grace of being able to be made vessels who can be used to communicate the the message of this Gospel. Thank You for the clarity and the simplicity of the Gospel that You have made known to us. Thank You, Father, for the grace that we need to be bold with this Gospel. And Father, as we look at this passage this morning, would the Gospel become clear to us what it is, how it is believed, and what it will do? And might we be bold with this Gospel, which all men must believe in order to be saved? So would you guide our hearts into transformation by this message and word of the faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This week there has been significant conversation on the internet and elsewhere about October 31. No, I'm not talking about chocolate and Halloween, but I'm talking about Reformation Day. And the discussion about Reformation Day has been a good reminder for us about the gospel and its significance. As someone has said, the gospel is the one message that counters everything we want to believe about ourselves and God. The gospel is not incidental. The gospel is critical. The gospel, along with the Savior who brought the gospel, is is the hinge point of history. Everyone relates to the gospel in some way and everyone's present and everyone's future is determined by the gospel. Either one is a gospel person or a gospel-less person and everything hangs in the balance and is dependent on whether or not you are full of the gospel. It is not just the hinge point of history, it is the hinge point of my history, of our history. Because everything... Because everything and eternity hangs in the balance based on the gospel. It's essential to get the gospel right. People die eternally if the wrong gospel is believed or if the right gospel is believed in a wrong way. We want to get it right. We want to get the gospel right with our children. We want to get the the gospel right with our parents. We want to get the gospel right with our siblings, with, with our extended families. We want to get the gospel right with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with the people we interact with in the community on a daily basis. We want to get the gospel right when we preach it in Awana. We want to get the gospel right when we preach it in a worship service. We want to get the gospel right when we preach it in a counseling room. We want to get the gospel right when we preach it as we go knock on doors, as we go door to door in our various neighborhoods. The gospel is the message 
that is the most important message that anyone will ever hear, that anyone will ever have to respond to. And we're not always bold with the gospel, though, are we? It appears to me that one of the reasons we are not always bold with the gospel is that we have trouble thinking about what the gospel really is. We have trouble um, condensing it down, isolating it down to, to what it really is at its heart. And so what the apostle has done in this particular passage is he has reminded us, verse 8, that the word of faith is near us. That is the word that produces faith, the word that is of the faith, that is of, of the truth about who Christ is, that is the word of, of those who are in Christ. That word of faith is near us. It's close by. And then starting in verse 9 with the little word that, he defines what the word of faith is. And here's how Paul will condense it down in verses 9 and 10. The message of the gospel is the message about Christ that must and can be believed for salvation. The message of the gospel is the message about Jesus Christ. What is, what is the truth about Jesus Christ that must be believed so that, so that we can be saved? That is the message that must be believed And what Paul also is pointing to in Romans chapter 10 is that it can be believed, that all men are responsible to believe. What will he tell us about this message of the gospel? He will answer for us three key questions about the gospel. Rumor is we might only get to the first two questions, but he will address three questions about the gospel in this passage. And the first question is, the content of faith. What is the gospel? The content of faith. As we, as we speak the truth of the gospel to other people, what, what is it that we must be communicating about the gospel? And Paul will identify in verse 9, and then a little bit as well in verse 10, but primarily in verse 9, he will identify three components of the gospel. Now, this is not everything that the gospel is. There is certainly more about Jesus Christ that we can learn and believe in and that we will believe in if we trust in Him. But this is, as it were, the irreducible minimum. You cannot believe less than this and be saved. You must believe at least these truths in order to be saved. And friends, that also means that if we're going to be sharing the gospel, communicating the gospel, these are the truths that must be in our gospel presentations. What is the gospel He points to three aspects of the gospel. The first is the incarnation. Christ took on manhood. The word of faith, verse 8, is near us. This is the word of faith which we are preaching. What is this, Paul? What is this word of faith? That, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus. Here he's referring to our Savior by the name Jesus. That, that's His earthly name. That's His human name. Whenever you hear the name Jesus, it always refers to the human aspect of His nature. Jesus was not His eternal name. Jesus was the name that He took on at the Incarnation. It's what identified Him as a human being. And so when we refer to the Savior as Jesus, as the Apostle does in this verse, it is a reminder that He is human. And, and this, this reality about the humanity of our Savior is something that the Apostle has been pointing to throughout this letter. So 
If you even go back to the opening verses, and this is one reason why we read them earlier this morning, if you go back to these opening verses, he's talking in verse 1 about the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning His Son, the eternal Son of God, who was born of a descendant of David. That little phrase, concerning His Son who was born, is a shattering statement. Eternal God is born. The one who is self-existent, the one who is not created, the one who is, as it were, self-created, the one, the one who has life in himself, the one who has always been, now has an advent and a beginning point in time. Christ never has begun until he took on the mantle of humanity and was born. This is a, a shattering statement. And, and Paul emphasizes that in verse 3 of chapter 1. Not just he was born, but he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That is, he had real flesh and blood, and in that flesh and blood manhood, he was in the lineage of David. That is, that is the one who is uncreated, the one who is self-existent, has a father, and a lineage biologically. He's, he's pointing to the humanity of Christ. He will also point to it again. We see this a number of places in this letter, but just listen as he talks in 5.15. Listen to what he says. If by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And so in 5.15, he says it took a man, Jesus Christ, to supplant the work that was done by another man, Adam. We, we find the emphasis on the humanity of Christ also in chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You have a mortal body? Christ had a mortal body. So mortal was Christ's body that it had capacity to die, and it did. Paul is, is emphasizing, not all, th- all throughout the book, and, and even in this particular passage, that Christ came as a man, that Jesus Christ was a genuine human being. Notice verse 6 in this in this particular passage, he says, the righteousness based on faith does not, uh, excuse me, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven that is to bring Christ down? Who, who will go to heaven in order to compel Christ to come? You don't have to do that. Why? Because he has come of his own volition, of his own desire, of his own obedience to the will of the eternal Godhead, the triune Godhead. And no one had to go to heaven to compel Christ to come. He has come. He is true God and true man. He came with His humanity, not, not giving up His deity, but, but maintaining His full deity at the same time, having also the, the mantle and the reality of humanity. And because He is Truly God and truly man, He is perfectly righteous to stand in our place as sinners. 
If he was not God, he could absorb some but not all of God's wrath. If he was not man, he could not be our substitute. He had to be a man to become our substitute, to stand in our place as sinners. It took the incarnation. It took the incarnation of Christ for us to receive His righteousness. We're, we're, we're coming to a, a season of the year when, when people are willing to accept Christ on the basis of His humanity. The, 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 I mean, who doesn't like an eight-pound baby, right? Just cooing and quiet. And, and, and just the gentleness of the day. It's so innocent. Who can't embrace, who can't embrace a baby? Who can't, who can't love a story like Mary and Joseph? I mean, the, the quintessential underdogs, the world would say. And, and they overcame. And they, they escaped from Herod. What a, what a great story. But, but it's not always been that people have embraced the humanity of Christ. So John writes in his first epistle that the humanity of Christ must also be embraced. He says um, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. This is the one who is opposed to Christ, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And whoever denies the Son does not, does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, it's not just about the denial of the deity of Christ, it's also about the deniety of Jesus and His humanity and the fact that He has descended to the earth. He will say in chapter 3, verse 5, We know that He appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. But, but friends, if Jesus Christ is not humanity, then He cannot take away sin because He cannot stand in our place. It took a real man to absorb the real wrath of God to stand in our place. Nothing else but a man will do in order to be our substitute. That's why the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was inadequate because a bull does not correspond to a man. A lamb does not correspond to a man. A, a goat does not correspond to a man. A bird does not correspond to a man. A grain of wheat does not correspond to a man. It took a man to stand in man's place and absorb the wrath of God. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. As you evangelize, and as you speak the gospel to those who do not know the gospel, remind them that Jesus Christ is a perfect sacrifice. God in the flesh. A genuine, real man. Well, the content of our gospel is the incarnation that Jesus Christ is fully man. But it's not just that He is fully man. It is also lordship. That Jesus Christ is deity, and He has maintained that deity. Notice what He says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. The temptation in some parts of the early church was to deny the humanity of Christ. The temptation in our culture 
has been to deny the deity of Christ. And, and this is what's, what's focused on with this word Lord. It is to emphasize that He is the God-man. It is to emphasize that He is genuine deity. The one who believes in Jesus Christ must believe in Him as Jesus, the man who died as our substitute, and he must believe in Him as Lord, the Master, the Sovereign. Well, the, the word Lord is a, a common word for deity in the Scriptures. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament and look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the document that's called the Septuagint, so it's it's... The Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, the, the common, the most common name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. It's His covenantal relationship with Israel. It's, it's the most essential word about or name about who God is. And as, as the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word that was most commonly used to translate Yahweh is this word Lord. Over 6,000 times. The word Lord is used in the Old Testament to refer to God, the covenantal God. This is, this is Paul's way of telling us that he believes that Jesus, while a man, at the same time shared the name, nature, holiness, power, authority, majesty, and eternity of the eternal God. He was, in fact, fully God. This title, Lord, indicates the mastery of God, the supremacy of God, the sovereignty of God. Jesus Christ, as Lord, is the master. He is the ruler. While Jesus Christ is fully man, do not diminish His deity in the process. He, he is also fully God. And so Paul will say in his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 1, speaking about Jesus Christ and about God and His power in Christ, he says in verse 20, Ephesians 1 verse 20, which He brought about in Christ. Who is, who is Jesus Christ? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Where are these heavenly places? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So for all of eternity, Christ is exalted above all else. Only Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Only Christ has the kind of authority and power and dominion and name that He has. And verse 22, He, God, put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christ is over all things. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is Master. And this is the message about the Lordship of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ that was, that was preached in the early parts of the church. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, in the first sermon that he preaches after the resurrection of Christ, the Apostle Peter says this, Therefore, Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. He's made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you put to death what you thought was only a man, and Christ, or excuse me, God, has exalted Him and demonstrated that He is Lord. 
He, he is master. This is the same thing that will be preached in Acts chapter 10. Again, also by Peter, verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He is master. He is sovereign. He is king. He is over all and above all and greater than all. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that He is our Master, He is our Sovereign, He is our Leader, He is authoritative over us in everything that we do. It is to say that He is the Master. And when Paul says that if you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, it means that we want Him as Master. It's not just that we acknowledge, yeah, it's true that that Jesus is King, It is to say we want His kingship. We want His mastery. We want His power to remove from us the mastery of our Adamic nature and our propensity to sin and remove us from that life that we were before Christ and move us into Him so that no longer is Adam master over us, no longer is sin master over us, but Christ is master over us. Listen. Everyone has one of two masters, and it's not you. You are either under the mastery of Adam and sin, or you are under the mastery of Christ. And to believe in Jesus as Lord is to say, I want the mastery of Christ. I want Him to transform me. I want Him to work in me a new obedience that I could not accomplish on my own. And this is not to say that we will always submit to Him because we won't always submit to Him. It is not to say we will always obey Him perfectly because we will not, but it is to say that that is what we want. In our heart of hearts, that's our conviction, that's our, that's our longing, that is our desire. And friends, this is, this is the very purpose for which Christ came to die. He died for us to accomplish and bring about this mastery of Him over our lives. Just, you're in chapter 10. Just turn back a page to Romans chapter 8. Those whom He foreknew, verse 29, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. He, He planned and purposed your salvation for the purpose of making you to look like Jesus, to conform you to Him. And notice what he says at the end of that verse, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. He died and He planned, God planned your salvation so that Christ would be preeminent in your life. He came to accomplish your salvation so that He would be master in reality over your life. This is the same thing that the Apostle will say in chapter 14, verse 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. In other words, we belong to the Lord. If we're in Him, we belong to Him, whether we're alive or dead. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And notice again, he's emphasizing this mastery. He's using the word Lord, Master, Sovereign. For to this end, verse 9, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. This is, this is why Christ died, so that He would be the Lord. 
Christ did not die in order to be second place in your life. Christ did not die for you and redeem you and save you so that, so that life gets better, but He is secondary or tertiary or worse. He died so that He would be primary. In fact, we, we, we find this emphasis on the Lordship of Christ, the, 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 the fact that He is master throughout the epistles and, and, and throughout Paul's letters, even in, even in Romans, Paul refers to Christ as Lord 32 times. And in fact, a number of times he refers to him not just as Lord, but he refers to him as our Lord. He is, he is the Lord who belongs to us. So for instance, 424, speaking about, um, justification by faith, he says, for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Chapter 5 verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is He is not only Lord in the the general sense, he is not just Lord over the mass of humanity, he is Lord over us as a corporate body and individually. Verse 11 of chapter 5, Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He is master, He is Lord, He is sovereign, and He is over me. Jesus Christ is Lord, and He died on the cross to become our Lord. And this Lordship of Christ is the touchstone of faith said one writer. It says another writer, if Christ's lordship does not disrupt our own lordship, then the reality of our conversion must be questioned. You must confess, notice what he says, Jesus as Lord. Is he not just Lord like, well, yeah, he's a great king. No, is he your Lord? The Lordship of Christ is essential to the Gospel. The message of the Gospel, my friends, is that Jesus Christ came to change our lives and to liberate us from sin now. He's not just the Lord in heaven. He is the Lord of everything and everywhere at all times. And if He is our Lord, then He is our Lord. Not just one day when we get to heaven, but He is our Lord today, now. There's so much confusion about this. Many years ago when I was in seminary and involved in a church and doing some evangelism training, I was taking out a fellow seminary student who became a, a close friend. And we were doing some evangelism training and we were going knocking on doors and talking about the gospel to people. I remember on one evening we were driving back, and I'll never forget this, as we're driving back, John turned to me and said, you know, Terry, I, I, I get why we're telling people the gospel. This is a seminary student. I get why we're telling people the gospel that, that, that they get heaven. But what good is the gospel now? What do we tell them, what do we tell them about the gospel now that, that makes it attractive now? Why, why should the gospel be beneficial now? Friends, that's the kind of question that arises when you don't believe in Jesus as Lord. Because, because Jesus is just something to fix it so you get to heaven, but you're really not concerned about getting Him. No, the gospel 
is to get us to Christ and to get us to God. It's not that we get freedom from sin. Friend, we get Him. He is our Lord. What do you tell someone who's ensnared by pornography or someone abused by a predator or someone someone struggling with depression or PTSD or fear and anxiety or someone who's facing an untimely illness or an untimely death? What do you tell those people if the gospel is only for the future and only for eternity? You've got nothing to tell them. But friends, if you, if you have a gospel that is focused on Jesus as Lord, you can tell them Christ came for this circumstance, for this depression, for this anxiousness, for this temptation to pornography, for this sin, for this illness. Christ came and He can liberate you from it and He is sufficient to see you through it. That's the message of the gospel. Those people aren't stuck in their sin and they aren't stuck in their situation because Christ isn't stuck. Christ is Lord. What is the gospel? The content of our faith is the incarnation Christ took on manhood. It is also lordship. Christ maintained deity. It is also resurrection. Christ is victorious. Notice the third truth that the apostle identifies the gospel with in verse 9, that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He is from the dead, That is to say, he was dead, he genuinely died, but friends, that is no longer where he is. He was dead, but he is raised. That's why he says in verse 7, or or who will descend into the abyss? Who, Who will go to the place where dead people are? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to go to the place where dead people are in order to find Christ, because as the angel said to the women at the tomb, he is no longer here. He is resurrected. He has come to life. And the apostle identifies here that it is God who has raised him from the dead, that that the Father has raised him from the dead, that it was the Father's action on behalf of the Son that has raised him from the dead. That's the same truth that the Father has acted for the Son that we saw in chapter 4, verse 24. It's the same thing that we will see in chapter 6, verse 4, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So, So the Father and the Father's glory were the mechanism by which the Son was raised and and if he was raised in that way then the father will work that same kind of glory in our lives so that we can also live in a new way so it is it is the father that has resurrected the son but also it says in chapter 8 verse 11 if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so so it was the father's spirit who raised Christ from the dead and in the same way that the spirit resurrected Christ the spirit will resurrect us when we believe in Christ so the father is involved in the resurrection The Spirit is involved in the resurrection. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So no one can kill me. When I die, I die because that's my plan. No one takes it from me. And then listen to this astounding statement. I have authority to lay it down 
and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The the one who is eternal and self-sufficient and self-existent is the one who is, when he is dead, can make himself come back to life again. Why? Because he holds life in his hand. He's not just alive. He is the source of life, the originator of life, the giver of life. All life is found in Him, even His own life at the resurrection. So what you have is the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working to bring about the resurrection of the Savior. Every aspect of the Trinity is involved in validating the payment of Christ that he paid at the cross through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It is, a, it is essential that we recognize the cruciality of the resurrection. This is not a secondary issue. It is a primary issue. If Christ only died but was not resurrected then God has not validated His payment for sin. If Christ is still in the tomb, if Christ is still dead, then He is still attempting to satisfy the wrath of God against Him. And if Christ can't satisfy God's wrath, then friends, we are hopeless. In fact, it's even worse than that. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's empty. Your faith also is vain. You have an empty faith. You have a, you have a faith that can't accomplish what you are supposing it to accomplish. It, it's even worse than that. Verse 15, he says... We're even found to be false witnesses of God. If we say there's a resurrection and there is no resurrection, now we've lied about who God is. We've added more condemnation to ourselves. It gets even worse than that. If the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And the implication obviously is, and you can't get out of it. Well, but if... If Christ can't save me eternally, at least if I believe in Him, then He, then He transforms my life now. And He, there, there are things that I get from being a follower of Jesus Christ that make my life better now, some will say. Even if Christ isn't resurrected. If Christ isn't resurrected, at least I've had a better life now. A more productive life, a more moral life because of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says, because he says the exact opposite. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in this, in Christ, in this life only, if, if Christ is only for this life, then we are of all men most to be pitied. We've wasted our lives. If Christ is not resurrected, He is of no value in eternity or today. He's worthless. And if we're chasing after Him when He's worthless, we are the worst kind of fools 
And we, we have wasted our lives in the worst kind of ways. What is the gospel message? It's really quite simple. It's the incarnation. It's lordship. It's resurrection. It's the real humanity of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and came as our substitute. It's the real authority and lordship of Christ who is master over all to become our substitute for sin, to transform us from the inside out. It is the real resurrection of power, of Christ's power over sin and death. That's the gospel. You're going to meet somebody for lunch today, bump into somebody you know in the community at lunch today, talk to your neighbor. Here's the gospel, incarnation, lordship, resurrection. It's more than that, but believe that and you'll be saved. Believe less than that and you cannot be saved. And friends, this is, this is the truth that must be ingrained in our minds. Second question, the mechanism of the gospel. How is the gospel received? And Paul will identify two means by which we receive it in verse 9 and then reiterates them again in verse 10. Verse 9 he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, so there is a, a verbal confession and... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And from the dead. So there's a, an external or a verbal confession and there's an inward conviction. And then he uses those same principles again in verse 10. With a heart, a person believes inward conviction resulting in righteousness. With a mouth, he confesses external confession, a declaration of what I believe. And there's been a question about why does Paul say in verse 9 that you confess first and then you believe? And I think it's really quite simple. All Paul is doing in verse 9 is he's following the pattern of what he has said in verse 8. So in verse 8, he's quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And so copying what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, he says in verse 9, that the gospel is something that comes from our mouth and resides in our hearts. And then, then in verse 10, he flips those around and gives the theological pro- pro- progression that we believe first inwardly and then we speak outwardly. What are the two mechanisms of faith, if you will? How is the gospel received? First of all, it is exercised by inner conviction. We've already noted this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. The belief must originate in the heart. It's not merely a verbal assent. It's not a prayer that is prayed. It is an inner settled conviction that Jesus Christ is who He says He is and He has done what He says He has done. When, 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 the, new, when the, the biblical writers use the word heart, they're talking about all that stuff that relates to what's inside of us. They're, they're talking about, about will and they're talking about volition and they're, they're talking about, um, um, our desires and our longings and they're talking about our conscience. It's all that inward thinking, inward meditating, inward desiring. And he says, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it must be settled inside of you. You must, you must believe internally, not just externally, but internally. It's not just emotions, which is what we typically think of with the word heart, but it, but it is everything in relation to our, our, our religious consciousness. And to say that we, 
we believe is to say we just put out our hands in faith and say, I need something that I cannot accomplish on my own. Would you, would you grant it to me? Would you give it to me? Faith is no act. It is no, it is no work that we accomplish on our own. Faith by definition, as we've noted a number of times, faith by definition simply says, I cannot do this. God, if I will be saved, then you must do it. You must accomplish it on my behalf. It's simply the empty hand receiving the free gift of God's grace. It is, it is a complete reliance on Jesus Christ. Paul will say the same thing in verse 10. With a heart, with a heart, a person believes. Notice in verse 10 that he uses the word believes. It's a present tense. So it's ongoing. So it's not something that happened to us in the past, but it is something that we perpetually, continually, constantly are believing. This, this belief is rock solid and this belief is perpetual and continual. It's an inward working of the gospel in our hearts in which we are always trusting in Christ. So faith is exercised by inner conviction and then also faith is demonstrated by public affirmation. Notice what he says beginning verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. To confess something is to acknowledge it or, or claim it or express allegiance to it, even even praise something. In fact, First Timothy chapter 6, Paul says that, that Christ confessed about His nature and about the nature of God. So Christ also gives a confession, gives an affirmation. That's the sense in which the word is used here, that we give affirmation that Jesus is our Lord. Isn't that, isn't that some kind of act? Isn't that some kind of work by which we're, we're saying you're, you're, you're doing something that is bypassing the process of faith? No, no, no. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Chapter 6, verse 45. And Paul's simply applying that principle here. If, if Christ has come in, and I believe Him in my heart, and He has changed my heart, out of the overflow of my faith that is internal, I, I will speak. How can I not speak? Regina and I had dinner with Daniel and Elizabeth the other night. Can you guess what the topic of conversation was? They've been married uh, 20, 20, 29 days. Oh, they're... They are just stuck on each other. I mean, there was like maybe a grain of sand distance between the two of them. Why? (laughs) Because there's this new union and this new joy and this new delight that they have in each other. And how can it help but overflow? Some of you have become grandparents. And, and, And after you become grandparents, I'll say, hey, how are things going? Great. Can I show you a picture of my grandson? Uh, well, I didn't ask, but sure, <laughs> right? Why, why are you talking about that grandbaby? <laughs> because because that's, that's what is in that moment a rightful priority for you. Friends, when Christ transforms you from the inside out, you will give confession. If you are saved, there will be profession. That profession is not what saves you, but that profession is what gives evidence to your salvation. Belief without confession is not a true belief and confession without true belief is a false confession. These are, these are two aspects 
of the same reality that we're reaching out to God in faith for Him to save us. I imagine if Paul were here this morning, at this point he would just stop and say something like this. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you must believe. You must believe that Jesus Christ has descended from heaven. You must believe that Jesus Christ is exalted Lord of the universe. And you must believe that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the grave. You must believe that that Jesus is who He said He was and is. And you must believe that Jesus Christ has come to transform your life. Would you believe in Him? If you are not following Jesus in that way this morning... There's every, every reason to question whether or not you are saved. And if you are not saved, can I just simply say, you are responsible to believe. This, this word of faith, verse 8, has come near. It's near to us. And friend, if you are not a believer, you, you, you have heard it. You are responsible for hearing it. And you must believe. The question is, Will you believe? Will you simply reach out the hand and say, God, will you change me? Because I need change. Recently, there was a documentary that was released entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Documentary on the life of Mr. Rogers. I've not seen it. Perhaps some of you have. But I've been told in a couple different places that during the film, his wife recounts that shortly before he died on his deathbed, he looked at her and asked her the simple question, am I a sheep? Now, on the one hand, the culture says, wait, 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 Mr. Rogers? I mean, who is nicer than Mr. Rogers? Who's kinder and more gracious and gentle than Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers? Not a sheep and a follower of Jesus Christ? But in that moment, as he was about to transfer from mortal life to eternal life, there was evidently something in his conscience that was asking him, am I really a follower of Jesus? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know where he, where he is. I, I don't know what he believed prior to that. I don't know what he believed in that moment. But I do know But the message that he needed was made available to him. It was near. And the message is the gospel about Jesus Christ. And it's the message that is sufficient to save him. It is the message that is sufficient to save you. And it is the message that is sufficient to save me. And it is the message that we are responsible to respond to. We will be held accountable. Every one of us. The message is near. Do you believe? The message is near. If you have believed, are you telling this message? Because this is the singular message that will save sinners from God's wrath. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of these truths. We are dependent on them. We are wholly dependent on them. There is nothing else. So would you make us to not be cowardly any longer in speaking this truth? Would you make us 
to be clear with this truth. To just simply tell people about Jesus. Descended, ascended, resurrected. And might we compel them to believe in this Savior who will spare us from the wrath to come. Thank you, Father, for the message that has saved many of us. And thank you for the privilege of making those of us who have been saved to be conveyors of this message to those who are not yet saved. We pray these things, thanking you in Christ's name. Amen.